It is 67 verses. So for the next 10 minutes. Actually, we're going to read it as we uh, go through. We will uh, read the whole thing, um, even the repetitive parts. But uh, uh, before we do that, uh, it would be good for us. Um, I'm going to go blind up here trying to <laughs> look at all this stuff. It's just a tad dark. Um, it would be good for us to open with a word of prayer. So join me uh, in prayer, and we'll dive into this text. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. As always, we thank you for this church family and all the people that you've brought here this morning and all that you're doing in our midst. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray uh, again that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand. We study these things which you have written. But Lord, in this passage, we're struck by your providence. We read this. We know from our own experience how your kindness and mercy has visited us and how it protects us. And Lord, we ask as we study this word that we would not only be moved by the story, but that we, we would be moved particularly to trust in you in the midst of our own situations and our own circumstances, knowing that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For this, as always, again, we need your grace. We need your spirit. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. We pray, amen. Amen. Well, we're in Genesis, and uh, uh, we've been here for a few weeks now. Um, God has been good as we've gone through this story, but it does seem a little strange to me. We get here to Genesis 24 that the longest chapter in Genesis tells us the story of how a man got his wife. I know for some of you guys that makes perfect sense. It was a rather long process for you. <laughs> Knowing laughter there. And while it is an important topic and it's a beautiful story, kind of was wondering, you know, does it really deserve this much space? I mean, after all, there's only 31 verses devoted to creation. The whole creation account in Genesis 1. And yet we get more than twice that, 67 verses, relate how Rebecca became Isaac's wife. Why? Well, Genesis chapter 24, verse 1, all the way through chapter 25, verse 11, record for us the last days of Abraham. And in large, me large measure, they're taken up with the issue of uh, Isaac as the successor to the promise of the covenant. And the approaching death of Abraham raises in our minds the very obvious and uh, logical um, uh, questions of, you know, what is God doing here? Why, uh, what's going on? What's happening? What is going to become of his descendants? If you remember, God's done great things in the life of Abraham. He promised him descendants. And yet his son is not yet married. As best we can tell, he's approximately 40 years old at this point. And so you have to ask the question, what's going to happen to this chosen line here at the end of Abraham's life? 
Right now, Abraham's still alive, but in Genesis 24, the focus turns to Isaac and his future. In fact, this passage we see this morning is very much a transitional passage. It sets forth one of these turning points, and the focus is clearly on Isaac and on Rebekah and on their future. Of course, when the husband in the story is Isaac, who's the beloved son of Abraham, the narrative takes on greater significance. After all, Isaac is the next living link in this chain of blessing that's going to culminate in the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever happens to Isaac is of utmost importance in God's great plan of salvation. But the passage is more, uh, much more than simply a God-fearing parent desiring a believing spouse uh, for his child, which is a good desire to have. I'm not saying that's not good. But the passage is really about the continuation of the line of promise. You know, as the old saying goes, it takes two to make a marriage, a single daughter and an anxious mother. <laughs> but in this passage, the matchmaking is clearly in the hands of three, not looking at any of the anxious moms in the congregation this morning. There's, there's three characters involved in this marriage. First, you have Abraham, an aged father, now a widower. You have this very faithful servant, the oldest servant in the house. We think it's Eleazar. He's not named, but it seems from what else we know in Genesis, that's most likely. But above all, you have the gracious and sovereign God of Abraham involved. And as I wrote in the weekly email uh, this week, by the way, if you're not getting that, let me know. We need to... Make sure everybody's getting that. But as, we wrote in the, uh, as I wrote in the email, this is a passage about marriage, guidance, providence, and prayer, but mostly it's about God. So let's turn to our text. We're going to start with the will of the Father, verses 1 through 9. The will of the Father. First blank there in your outline. And if I'm able to, I'm going to read this. Um, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Well, after Sarah's death, which uh, Tom Rabino preached about so ably last week, Abraham now faces another tough situation. Isaac's grown up. As I said, he's about 40 and he needs a wife, and not just for the usual reasons, but for the sake of the promise. He needed a wife so there could be a multitude of promised descendants. 
Genesis 22 said, uh, God said to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. However, Abraham's living in a foreign country surrounded by godless Canaanites, the very peoples who are going to be dispossessed by his descendants. And so if Abraham marries Isaac to one of the women in the land, well, that'd hardly be a promising scenario for raising up godly offspring. But if he left the promised land in order to find a wife for Isaac, he would be directly disobeying God, who told him to stay in the land. Either of these options would be taking a shortcut, an attempt in his own strength to help God fulfill the promise. And every time Abraham's tried that in the past, it's turned into a disaster. So, and furthermore, this time, Abraham's gotten no direct revelation from God to help him out. He has to rely on his conscience and his faith. So first of all, he makes the servant swear to him and symbolizes that oath by putting his hand under Abraham's thigh. To our way of thinking, that's an odd way to take an oath. Today we shake hands. I like that a lot better. <laughs> Let's just say that it has something to do with the sign of the covenant and is meant to invoke the blessings of the covenant for obedience and the curses of the covenant for disobedience. It's a way to emphasize the seriousness of the oath one is taking. I can tell you, if somebody put their hand under my thigh, I would be taking it seriously. <laughs> and apparently Abraham and the servant did as well. So the path of faith for Abraham is to send his servant on what has to seem to the servant like mission impossible. This servant has to travel approximately 450 miles one way in order to find a suitable young woman from Abraham's own people. All the way back, if you remember, Abraham started in Ur, got a reverse, which was way over here, went to Haran, and then came down to the Promised Land. He's going to send him back to Haran and Nahor, which is about in the middle where all of his, his relatives are. About 450 miles on the map. And when he gets there, He's got to find this woman and then talk her into coming back with him to the promised land to be a wife for someone she'd never met. Look at verse 5. Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? It's a pretty logical question. He hasn't taken the oath yet. And he said, what if she doesn't come? I have to come back and get Isaac and take him there. You know, and clearly what he's saying this doesn't make a lot of sense. She's not going to marry a guy she's never even seen. But Abraham responds to the question with essentially, absolutely not. His answer is all of faith, which is, I think, quite fitting because these are his last recorded words in the Bible. Starting at verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take, back, you must not take my son back there. What Abraham is saying is, is God's going to provide a wife for Isaac. 
And if he doesn't do so by this means, we'll leave it entirely up to him to fulfill his promise in his own way. No shortcuts are going to be taken. The promise isn't going to be fulfilled by the wisdom or the strength of any man. The doubts and questions are gone now in Abraham's life. It's replaced by the serene faith in God's power and his will to provide. There is no other plan. And so in the midst of difficult circumstances in this unforeseeable future, Abraham's faith holds firm to two things. God's faithfulness to what he had promised and the need for obedience. God's faithfulness to what he had promised and the need for obedience. You know, over the years I observed there's a couple favorite topics that youth groups love to discuss. The famous uh, LSD youth group class, Love, Sex, and Dating. The, uh, but in general terms, those topics are guidance I'm going to graduate from high school. What am I going to do with my life? Where am I going to go to school? What's going to happen? And relationships. Guidance is not usually the priority. And I think because one of the burning, burning questions for youth, for high school and college students, is who's the right one for me? And the truth is, at whatever age you may be, all you really need to know about guidance can be summed up in one sentence. I know this is going to sound sort of cold and pragmatic and crass, but I think it's still the truth. And that is God is faithful, so obey him. God is faithful, so obey him. And whether or not that seems likely to work is not really your business. Being obedient to God's revealed will is your business. And so Abraham's servant sets out on this impossible task. And along the way, we see the faith of this servant, the faith of this servant, starting at verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, this is a prayer, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca. That's a great line. <laughs> behold, Rebecca. Probably going to use that. Who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. 
When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So Abraham's servant set out on this impossible mission. And he arrives at the well of the city. It's a natural meeting place in the ancient Near East. And he devises a test to determine God's will. Look at verse 14. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and one Uh, And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. He's proposing a test of character, a test of generosity, a test of hospitality. It requires someone to be willing to go the extra mile in ministering to a stranger. What's more, his test was bathed in prayer. He had prayed back in verse 12, O Lord, God of my master, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Notice he doesn't ask for a miraculous sign from God. Not at all. He asks for supernatural guidance in the way that it most often comes through the ordinary events of life. Now, Abraham knew that it's important to marry in the Lord. It's only common sense to marry someone who shares the most important thing in your life. And for believers, that's our love for Jesus. But how are we to narrow down that big field? The test of Abraham's servant can be applied in a general sense, and that is we are not to look for someone who has physical beauty, power, or wealth, or even the right chemistry, but rather we're to seek someone of character. If you're looking for spouse for a spouse either now or someday, the key question you should be asking, does this person evidence godliness and grace in his or her life? That's what Abraham's servants looking for and he found it in Rebecca. He'd barely finished his prayer when the answer appears right in front of him. And Rebecca doesn't meet his request in a grudgingly uh, way or a complaining way. Okay. I'll get the water. But it says she hurries to serve him, knowing absolutely nothing about the significance of her actions. She doesn't know she's part of a test. She doesn't know the prayer. She doesn't know what's been said. She just walks up. He asks for a drink. She gives her a drink and says, I'll get water for your camels too. And that's what I find actually most astonishing in this story is that she volunteers to water his 10 camels. 
Now, to get an idea of what a big job this is, you have to understand, an ancient well is this large, deep hole uh, in the ground. Um, could be uh, as big as this front center section here. Think about the size of your average classroom. And it would be dug down, and there'd be spring in the bottom of it where the water would come, and there'd be steps. And so you'd walk down the steps and lower your jar into the spring and walk back up the steps. So every time you draw water, that requires a certain amount of effort. This is not the well uh, that, you know, in your grandma's backyard where it had the crank and the rope and the bucket. That, not that at all. This is a big hole in the ground. You had to walk down to where the water, the spring water was, and you lowered. And these are big jars, you know, big uh, pottery jars. You lowered that jar down in there, and then you had to carry it back up. These jars held about three gallons of water. So go ahead and start doing the math. I know some of you still do math. Um, this means that Rebecca makes somewhere between 80 and 100 descents into the well. Think about three gallons of water. Carrying it back up, empty it into the trough. Walk back down into the well, dip your jar in, fill it up. Carry it back up, empty it in the trough. Now do it 87 more times. The amount of time it takes for a camel to drink its full complement of water, uh, it takes about 10 minutes. A camel can drink 25 gallons of water. One camel, we got 10. This whole process takes a couple of hours. It's about two hours to do what she says. It just says, you know, and she just got water for the camels. But if you really sit down and think, 25 gallons, 10 camels, three gallons, and you know, all the math stuff, this is a lot of work. You know, Rebecca is no weakling. And the whole time, the servant watches in silence. He's just sitting back watching her get water again and again and again. Thinking maybe you had a little clicker there, you know, 66, 67, you know. And he's just trying to see, is God going to make this whole journey successful? The fact that he remained quiet is extraordinary, especially, I think, as Rebecca's coming up with the last few jars of water. I mean, the fact God's providential answer to his prayers beyond doubt. There's no mistake here. Rebecca is the answer to his prayers. But is she truly the right one for Isaac? Only when he hears what family she comes from and that she's part of Abraham's clan did this godly servant stop and praise God. Verse 26. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So for Isaac, God has not only provided a lamb, but has now provided a wife. And Abraham's faith in God is fully justified. And in her excitement, Rebecca runs home to tell mom this amazing news, leaving the servant standing at the well. It's left to her brother Laban to go out and bring the stranger home. 
And that's what we see next, an account of the providence of God, starting at verse 29. And uh, much of this is a repeat of the story, so I'm just going to read um, the first part and the very end, because he's just repeating the story. He's explaining it to them. But it starts, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So then he recounts the story of his meeting with Abraham and taking the oath and his prayer and what's going to happen at the well and how everything uh, works out. And then he gets to the end. We're going to jump down to verse 49. It says, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or the left. So he's laid out this amazing story of God's providence. Of how he had prayed this prayer and God had worked things out. And God had answered his prayer. And by the way, the answer was your daughter, Rebecca. His Abraham's servant has come uh, to Laban's house as an ambassador of good news, he thinks. I mean, he has to be wondering whether or not uh, Rebecca's family, Laban's family, is going to believe God and act in accordance with that belief. Would they entrust Rebecca to a total stranger and send her off to a distant land on the strength of God's promise? Verse 33 tells us he wouldn't eat until he got an answer. And then he recounts how God had guided him to Rebekah. And he asked her family if they understood and shared in his reading of God's providence and if they're willing to entrust their daughter into his care. Verses 34 through 49 recounts the story that he tells and culminates with this incredibly bold request. I mean, it's fairly audacious. But the servant doesn't think it's audacious because he knows it's the providence of God. If you walk through his words, you see he cuts right to the chase. He doesn't leave anything out. He makes it clear that God's hand's been in this from beginning. Look at verse 34. He identifies himself as a servant of Abraham. This connection with the family is thus established. I'm coming from your relatives. <coughs> and then verse 35, he tells them of Abraham's wealth. That no doubt would have been an appealing factor to Rebecca's family. And we know that he's brought all sorts of gold and riches. And after all, the servant has 10 camels. So that's a lot of camels. <laughs> then in verse 36, he says, oh, and by the way, Abraham has one son. And that means, of course, that all of Abraham's riches are going to that one son. There aren't 19 sons for his wealth to be spread among. Now, one son is going to be the inheritor of his great wealth. And again, this is an attractive thing. So verses 35 and 36, no doubt, would be very appealing to this family who's getting ready to engage in a marriage contract 
with another family. Now note what the servant doesn't say. Even though he's convinced the circumstances have revealed God's will, he doesn't try to force his interpretation on Rebecca's family. Despite being given the clearest possible guidance on his part, he puts everything uh, to the test of others. In effect, he's saying, here's what it seems to me that the Lord is doing. Do you interpret it the same way that I do? He doesn't presume that his understanding of God's providence is infallible. Instead, he trusts God. And if this is really God's will, then Rebecca's family would give uh, their consent. And they did. And all of them, Rebecca included, saw in this providence the hand of God. Which brings us to a not insignificant part of the story, and that's the trust of the bride. The trust of the bride, verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and of garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her mother and brother said, let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. They called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? This is the first time that they've asked Rebekah. They've already agreed to the deal. This is the first time. And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse. We know her name is Deborah. It's going to come later. And Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Their answer is a, uh, just a remarkable statement of simple faith. This thing has come from the Lord. Verse 50. And once the decision's made, it's carried out quickly. Not even the conventions of Near Eastern hospitality of staying and having a celebration for 10 days are allowed to delay the servant's return with Rebecca. So Rebecca leaves with the servant. Think about that. She doesn't know where she's going. She doesn't know what awaits her there. She has no idea what this guy is like. She doesn't know what he looks like. I asked the young women in the high school class, what do you think about this? Should we do it this way? They did not seem excited uh, about this. Although one of the young men was fine with it. Saves me a ton of work. <laughs> Said, but my family, we're going to have to get some servants. It's like, you know, deacons are servants. We can get one of the deacons. We can add that to the deacons list of things to do, you know. Like up to 450 miles, like going to Charlotte. We just send the deacons down to Charlotte, find godly women, bring them back. We just save a lot of time. 
But in this time, her brother and her mother ask her if she's willing to go with this man. And think about how hard this decision is. And her answer reveals her faith. In the Hebrew, it's one word, elek. I will go. And go she does. And upon her arrival, she discovers the love of the groom. The love of the groom, the end of our passage. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. I told the class, we're really glad he didn't repeat the whole story here because of another 30 verses. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now the story doesn't quite end with Isaac and Rebekah riding off into the sunset together as it would in a romantic Hollywood film. But this closing scene showing their first encounter out in the field I think would look great on the big screen. Their marriage is immediate, verse 67. He brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Rebekah replaces Sarah by entering into the deceased matriarch's tent. At once, she becomes the new matriarch of Israel. And he loved her is the first reference to marital love in the Bible. They had married in the Lord. They're one flesh. And there are undoubtedly differences between them that they would have to overcome. Certainly, they would travel down some difficult paths together. But they had at their disposal the means for overcoming uh, those difficulties because their lives are fundamentally headed in the same direction. They're both led by the same faith and the same God. And God had brought them together, and their faith in him would sustain them for all the days of their lives. Now, there's lots of lessons. This could have been four sermons. Lots of lessons we can draw here. I want to focus on one, the most obvious one, which is marriage. Particularly for those who hope to be married, want to be married, and will be married one day. So what guidance can we glean from this text on the topic of getting married? Well, first of all, taken from Genesis 24, we have to note four aspects. I know we're running out of time, so we're going to have to just go quick here. We have to note four aspects of God's wisdom for the choice of a mate. I'm assuming the parents are going to listen a little bit more carefully than the kids here, so you'll be able to pass this on at the right time, which is probably now. Look for godly character qualities above all else in a prospective mate. Beauty is nice. Godliness is essential. Especially look for someone who denies self and is focused on loving God and others. Look for a person who bases his or her life on obedience to God's word, who's growing in the fruit of the spirit. If you marry a beautiful woman who's focused on herself or a gorgeous guy who thinks the world revolves around him, you're in for a miserable ride in marriage. Second, finding the right person depends on being the right person. Because Rebecca had a servant's heart, she found Isaac. 
because she had thought, who's this old man asking me for water? And had gone on her way. She wouldn't have met Isaac. You got to be the kind of person you want to marry. If you want a kind, loving, godly mate, then you have to become a kind, loving, godly person. Third, probably the least popular here, seek the wisdom of your parents. Probably didn't want to hear that. But it's an unmistakable principle in the Bible. Abraham, through his servant, picked Isaac's wife. And although Rebecca had some say in the matter, it was her parents who approved it. And even though in our day and age, in our culture and society, our parents don't arrange our marriages anymore, we still need to listen to their counsel. Perhaps your objection is my parents are not believers. Their counsel is still worth listening to. They know you better than anybody. And if your parents have a strong objection to your fiance, you need to listen to them. And you need to think very carefully about what they say. They often have wisdom that you lack, particularly at the time when you're in the passion of romance. So listen to your parents. And fourth, foundation is the marriage. I said that backwards. Marriage is the foundation for love. Love is not the foundation for marriage. That's exactly the opposite of our society. Isaac, Rebecca married, then we read that he loved her. Don't misunderstand. I believe in romance, I believe in love, and love both those things. But if you build a marriage solely on romantic love, what do you have when the conflicts come and you don't feel in love anymore? If you build love on the foundation of the marriage commitment, you will be able to weather the inevitable storms. In the Bible, we're commanded to love our mates whether we feel in love or not. The feelings follow if we obey. So there's four quick points on getting married. But knowing how to get married is really not the main point of the passage. Knowing how to follow God is the main point. And there's two parts to following God. His part and our part. So that's pretty easy. There's no miracle in this story, as we usually think of miracles. No rearrangement of molecules. The sun didn't stand still. There's no healing. The river didn't stop up. Rather, God brings about the acquiring of Isaac's bride through the normal events of life, the delays, the customs, the stresses, the chance meetings. As J.I. Packer uh, has written, believers are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. Are you looking for guidance? Perhaps you're tempted to take shortcuts because you can't see any other way out. Remember the basic truths that Abraham had come to learn. God is faithful. We can trust him to provide. Our part is simply to be obedient to his will as it's revealed in his word. Abraham learned that lesson in an unforgettable way on Mount Moriah. There he learned to trust God's faithfulness against all odds, and he learned that God would indeed provide. And we who live after the coming of Christ have God's faithfulness displayed even more prominently, even more graphically for us on the cross. There God provided his sacrificial lamb for us, his only beloved.